Let's open our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 25. We close up the book of Kings tonight. That's the plan. Jerusalem Falls. I had hoped to come up with a more profound and exciting title, but that is it. Uh, it just it's pointless to try to, to look for something else because that's all it's about, really. Were it not for the prophet Jeremiah, this would just be a pretty drab study. But he brings a spiritual element to it. This chapter has the fallen captivity of Judah. It has a man named Gedediah who's made governor. He will be murdered, not in this chapter, but at this time. And then we again read about Jehoiachin, released from prison, and Zedekiah, um, what happens to him, who is the present king. The last verse of the previous chapter ended with Zedekiah going against his pledge of allegiance to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. And when he broke that pledge and started looking towards Egypt for help, Nebuchadnezzar was pretty upset. You know, the modern proverb, you don't pull on Superman's cape. And that's just what he did. He yanked on the wrong cape. And he's going to really pay for it. Uh, Samuel, the prophet, long ago said that the nation was susceptible to God's judgment if they departed from God. Well, he was just quoting what Moses taught them when he came down from the mountain. Uh, In detail, as cataloged for us in Deuteronomy especially. 1 Samuel 12, verse 25, But if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And this is what we are considering this evening. Now, interesting interesting is seven years prior to these events of chapter 25, the false prophet Hananiah, Hananiah, uh, he was praised for his false prophecies in the court of the king. Ah, Nebuchadnezzar's not going to come. In two years, the Babylon will be defeated. And, And Jeremiah said, I wish it was so. But it's not going to be so. And a lot of drama was connected with this. And Jeremiah leaves and God speaks to Jeremiah. He says, I want you to go back. And I want you to, de- to declare that, uh, that not only is that not true, but that you're going to be dead within the year. And that is what happened. And I've remarked about Jeremiah's profound prophecies and how so many of them were fulfilled in his lifetime But unfortunately, they weren't pleasant prophecies. They were prophecies of doom. And he's not the prophet of doom. He didn't cause this. He just called them out on it. Well, it is uh, that battle between the prophets, Hananiah and Jeremiah, one man's word against another man's word, both claimed to speak in Yahweh's name. What settled the matter was the fact, the truths that came out. But who was the one that was right? The one that adhered to the scripture. That's who won. That's the man that found God's favor. And for that, as a reward for Jeremiah, he was beaten, he was threatened, he was ostracized, he was chased, he was chained, and he's left in the prison. Now we look at verse 1. Now it came to pass in the ninth year of his reign, in the tenth month, on the day of, on the tenth day of the month, that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem and encamped against it, and they built a siege wall against it all around. And so they don't storm the city in those days, they just build a wall and starve you to death. Now, Jerusalem had its own water supply, but that would not be enough. This, um, This is Zedekiah that it refers to in the the ninth year of his reign. Uh, We know that from Jeremiah 31, 9. It names names him. But here Nebuchadnezzar, with all of his army, comes up, and within 14 months, Jerusalem will fall, and Zedekiah will be tortured and imprisoned and carried off, uh, imprisoned in, in Babylon. Ezekiel gives us even more details about the siege. But it is interesting, an interesting fact is that the motives that prompt a bad man into action may be different 
from the motives which incline God to allow him to do what he's going to do. And, and this is an example. The motives of Nebuchadnezzar was to control the reason, region, to gain wealth from the people that he conquered, to build his empire at the expense of other kingdoms. That was his motivation. God, on the other hand, was going to use him to discipline the Jewish people. But you can't factor out with Nebuchadnezzar that there's a man in Babylon that is influencing him in righteousness, and that would be Daniel. Daniel has already been there, and I think we're going to see some of the fruit of his ministry because Daniel was a dynamo in Babylon behind the scenes. And much of what came out of Babylon in the, in the righteous sense, was because of him. Now, he didn't overturn the Chaldeans. He did not, you know, just make Babylon something other than what it, what it was. But he did salt the kingdom at the top, and that, that does show up. It says here in verse 1, they built a siege wall against it all around. Well, this almost two and a half years, this wall's going to be up. Uh, the Egyptians will come to the aid of the Jews, but it, it won't work. It will interrupt the siege for a little bit, give them a little break. That extends the timeline out. Um, I mentioned it would be 14 months, probably a little bit longer than that because of their interruption. Some of the Jews, when Nebuchadnezzar comes back and continues his siege, they will turn to cannibalism. It won't be the first time in their history that they've done that. When Samaria, when Samaria was, was besieged, um, in the days of Elisha, the, uh, the prophet, uh, the people, some of the people turned to cannibalism there. Now, verse 2, we'll come back to that cannibalism in a minute or two. Verse 2, so the city was besieged until the 11th year of King Zedekiah. Now, Jeremiah had been counseling Zedekiah quite a bit. He was a weak king, and... Um, I think he was more weak than he was mean, but he was an idolater nonetheless. And it brought a lot of suffering, his evil ways did. And uh, this um, prophet Jeremiah had encouraged him to surrender the city and therefore save the city, the people and the city. The temple did not have to be chopped up into little pieces and broken down, uh, but... No, he, he would not listen. They refused to obey God's word and, and arrested Jeremiah as a traitor for disagreeing with them. And after Jeremiah's words came true, you'd think that there would be a line outside of his door to apologize to him. That's never the way it goes, it seems. They, uh, Jeremiah will be in his grotto writing the lamentations of Jeremiah. And here, the, the siege continues without hope of relief. And here's a point that, you know, you read, you, you get to sections that talks about Ammon and Moab and Philistia. And, and you're just like, this is kind of boring reading. But it is connected. In Ezekiel 25, Ezekiel pronounces judgments on Amnon, Moab, Edom, and the Philistines. And God adds in that chapter, for each one. Because you, and he, he points to how they treated Judah at this time. They were in an alliance with Judah uh, against Babylon, and when that didn't work, instead of just being defeated people by Babylon or subjected people, what they did instead is they waited so they could go in and, and loot Israel and Judah also, as much as they could take. And the prophet Ezekiel calls them out on that. In verse 3, so do some of the other prophets, incidentally, the minor prophets. In verse 3, in the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine had become so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Well, what does that have to do with me? You know, everything. This is God's word. And if it is all true, and it has to be all or nothing deal. If, it, if it's not all or nothing, then you put yourself as the judge of God's word, uh, and uh, the whole thing breaks down. Well, if it is true, and it is God's word, then it's to me. It has something to do with me in my life, wherever I find myself, in the workplace, amongst unbelievers, amongst believers, wherever I go. There should be some influence. Jesus asked, whose image is on the coin? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. And the implication is, well, if you're giving to God what belongs to him, then whose image is on you? Well, 
We're created in the image of God. Sin ruined that. Christ has restored that. Ergo, Christ's likeness. The likeness of Christ upon us because of the work of the Holy Spirit. Here in verse 3, and my point is it's meaningful. Don't dismiss this as just Jewish history. It's a spiritual book. It's beyond. It goes beyond just a historical account. God's got his fingerprints all over this. He didn't cause this, but he called it. It's a concept a lot of people seem to have a problem with. Just because God prophesies and knows everything doesn't mean he causes everything. He certainly controls, makes its boundaries. Jeremiah describes the horrors of this siege, particularly in Lamentation chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. He speaks about the cannibalism in, in gross detail. Just those two verses, for example. About 140 years earlier was the siege in Samaria that I mentioned a reference with Elijah. And there in 2 Kings chapter 6, Leviticus 26, God said, You shall eat the flesh of your sons and you shall eat the flesh of your daughters. That's the outcome God is saying. I'm not going to force anybody to do this. But when you turn from me and you start getting into the voodoo and all the other stuff that these other people are worshiping, you're going to draw to yourself evils that you can't imagine. And that is what happened. He brings it up in Deuteronomy 28, 28 also. And so as we look at this history, we, it's, it's too grotesque a story to dwell on. Aside from the fact that God said it would happen. And he's always right. And you come to the book of Revelation, God said this is going to happen. And it's going to happen just like that. We won't have the luxuries of Jeremiah watching his prophecies fulfilled, but we also are spared the sufferings, at least here in America right now, because there are other Christians in other parts of the world. They're not spared. Remember those in chains, wrote Paul to the Hebrews. Verse 4, Then the city wall was broken through, and all the men of the war, all the men of war fled at night, by way of the gate between two walls, which was by the king's garden, even, through the Cal- even though the Chaldeans were still encamped all around against the city, and the king went by way of the plain, which is the desert Arabah, and the, the Hebrew has there. It's rightly translated the plains. Uh, the, <laughs> Zedekiah. He dared not let God save him and the city and his family. When Jeremiah was just laying it on him, no less than three times uh, we have it recorded of Jeremiah telling him these things. There's more, but those are three direct times face to face. Instead, he deserts the people whom he has doomed. He doomed the people. All he had to do was submit to Nebuchadnezzar. But instead, he defied him. And now they're all going to pay. And his flight, his flight reminds us of his lifelong flight from reality. Well, there's a lot of people like that. I mean, we all want escapes from reality, ergo entertainment. Well, this man went beyond that. And it could only have one outcome. And we're going to read about it. Verse 5. But the army of the Chaldeans pursued the king, and they overtook him. In the plains of Jericho, all his army was scattered from him. Well, the men that were entrusted to protect the the women and the children in the city, they fled. And they got caught. Because Jeremiah, because he warned them, it's too late. It's, It's too late now. So, the men of war became men of flight repeatedly ignoring the warnings, vilifying the one giving them the word of God, as, as do we when we tell people about the judgment of hell for rejecting the Christ. We're, we're vilified uh, oftentimes. It's, uh, it's a true fight. It's hard. We, we love to talk about loyalty, but people will vilify us for being loyal. If you're loyal to what God has called you to, Maybe you, lo- you, you belong to a church, you're loyal to that church, and somebody doesn't want you to be loyal to that church, and they try to make you feel small for it. That's our cue to stand up. Even little problems, you know. As a pastor, you put policies in place, and, and when people defy those problems, you have a problem. 
And it, you can say, you know, I'm about tired of all this. I don't need it. I'm out of here. But then where's the courage in that? How do you get anything done against hell if when inconvenienced, you look for the path of least resistance? It's natural. It's just not spiritual. And it comes down to what we learn from men like Jeremiah and Paul is it comes down, it comes down to trusting God and letting him let you suffer while you trust him. We let the mercy of God overrule the judgment of God because God does that. That's why we love to talk about the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ because we know we're guilty. We know that he is a God that judges righteously. But if that is all we had, we would be doomed. We need something more than judgment and justice from God. We need mercy. And his mercy overrules his own justice. Well, I don't want to say justice because it's not an injustice. It's, it's one law superior to another law on the terms of God. And, and the easy illustration is the law of gravity God does not violate the law of gravity. He overcomes the law of gravity by giving man the ability to fly planes and and things like that. And so God has it all figured out. Men like Jeremiah, they figured out that God had it figured out, and they stayed there. He could have just left. He could have said, I'm just going to go live up in the tribe of Dan. I'll take up, you know, gardening or something. I'll live off the land. I don't need to be a prophet telling people what God has to say to them. Maybe you're like that in the workplace. Maybe you've lost your fire for the truth. Maybe you've been Christian long enough to find out it's tough going. And now you're just another potted plant in the workplace. There's no light there. Well, just be encouraged. Don't think that has to be the end of the story. Be loyal to God. And that's what we're looking for. At in the life of this man, Jeremiah, in these last days, as horrid as it is, he remains the prophet. So in verse 6, So they took the king and brought him up to Babylon at Riblah, and they pronounced judgment on him. Judah had the temple, they had the law, they had the priesthood, they had the prophets, they had the kings. They just didn't have Yahweh anymore. They didn't have the Lord. This is the same problem Christ runs into the churches in in the book of Revelation. You left your first love. I stand at the door and knock. The one to Ephesus. Ephesus, the darling church of the first Christians. The church that had so much invested in, in it. They left their first love, which warns all of us against that. And then, of course, Laodicea, the other bookend. If, if Ephesus is the first church, church that the Lord addresses, and then Laodicea. And here's another fun fact. Who does the Lord address when he deals with the mess in the church? Does he say, and to the congregation of the church at Ephesus? He does not. He says to the messenger. Well, who's the messenger? The pastor. We call the preaching the message, do we not? To the pastor of the church. And if, if, he, if he knows his scripture, he's going to be more afraid of hearing the Lord rebuke him than anybody dislike him. These things should be exciting to us because it gives us a chance to beat back what the devil does time and time again. And so be strong Stick to the Lord and his scripture. Uh, here, he, they bring, it says, so they took the king and brought him up to the, to the king at Babylon. That's Zedekiah. Riblah is where he is, about 200 miles north of Jerusalem. Verse 7, then they killed the sons of Zedekiah before his eyes, put out the eyes of Zedekiah, bound him with bronze fetters, and took him to Babylon. What a waste! All of this, 100% was avoidable. It is his fault. He is the one to be blamed. Those who could not, those who could claim a right to the throne, his sons, well, they eliminated that standard operation procedure for the the ancient kings. You, You get rid of the threats and any known threats. The daughters, 
his daughters will be set free. We read that in Jeremiah 41 and Jeremiah 46. But Zedekiah, once they put his eyes out, he would see nothing again. No fresh uh, visuals to sort of help erase the last thing he saw. Uh, that was it. That stuck in his head. He'd see nothing again. We read it in Second Chronicles 36, the parallel account. He did evil in the sight of Yahweh, talking about Zedekiah, Yahweh his God, and did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of Yahweh. Now, the historian writing Chronicles, he knows, he's after the fact, of course, because he, he, the Chronicles ends with the beginning of the book of Ezra, the events in the book of Ezra. So it's, it's, you know, he's looking back and he's saying to the Jewish people, don't be like this. Don't make these mistakes. Stick to the Lord. Believe in the prophecies. The whole world is supposed to be blessed because of you. That goes all the way back to Abraham. And yet the whole world is ostracized or separated from you. Uh, it has kept, kept them an independent people on one hand, but it has also disengaged them from being the light that God wanted them to be to the Gentiles. Well, coming back uh, to this, here he is now physically blind and physically bound. He was already spiritually blind and spiritually bound. Uh, Jeremiah adds this, and put him in prison till the day of his death. But he also prophesied this about Zedekiah, you shall die in peace. Yeah, in jail. He's going to be in prison until he dies. He will be blind, uh, but uh, he, that, that will be his end. He, he will not be murdered, I guess, is, is the idea. I think, when, as you look at the prophecies of Jeremiah about this king, you get, at least I got the feeling, uh, that Jeremiah's holding back. He doesn't want to tell him. That you're you're going to be blind, you know. You're going to just this is going to be really, and and he wouldn't have to because that's what they did in those days. Zedekiah would have known if he fell into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar uh, without making things right, he was going to suffer. And all that happened, verse eight, and in the fifth month, on the seventh day of the month, which was the nineteenth year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem. There's different standards for, for measuring the king's reign. I'm not even going to go into them. And it just makes everything, so when you talk the years, you, you have to do give or take a couple of years because of the different standards. This standard is the measurement of a Gentile king, which was rare, but we find it here in Kings. Anyway, Jeremiah is still in the king's prison now. At this point, in the fifth month of the seventh day of the month of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuzaradan, captain of the gods, servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And it's conquered now. Jeremiah's in jail. We pick that up in Jeremiah 39, verse 11. Now, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, gave charge concerning Jeremiah to Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, saying, Take him and look after him, and do him no harm, but do to him just as he says to you. That's quite profound. Nebuchadnezzar is a potentate. I mean, there's no human with more power than him on earth known to man at this point in history. And he says, you take care of Jeremiah. Whatever he wants, whatever he says, you do that. Well, he knew Jeremiah was giving good advice to Zedekiah, but there's got to be more than that. All... Kings have their sympathizers inside the city. They don't do this. Where's this coming from? Daniel. Daniel's got the king's ear. Maybe not directly saying to the king, you need to watch out, don't do this. I don't mean it that way. But Daniel's influence. You know, he, you have to love when, they, when Belshazzar offers him the trinkets for reading the handwriting in the wall. Jeremiah, uh, Daniel says, you keep it. I don't want it. Give it to somebody else. I was pretty bold to tell to turn down a king like that and say, "I don't need your stuff." And I'll tell you what it means, though. So, it, it, just such a man of of, of a, a dynamic character, Daniel was. God preserves these record about these people in the Bible. 
How can you not get excited about Esther saying, well, if I die, I die. But I know what I got to do. I know what my job is. And my duty is this. And if it kills me, it kills me. In verse 13 and 14 of Jeremiah 39, it goes on. So Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, sent. And then it continues. Then they sent someone to take Jeremiah from the court of the prison and committed him to get a get a liar. I know it sounds like I was going to say get a life, right? <laughs> to get a liar, the son of Ahikam, the son of Shaphan. These are meaningful names, these, these three characters. That he should take him home so he dwelt among the people. So that, you know, Jeremiah didn't want to go back to Babylon. So when the king Nebuchadnezzar says, do to him what he wants, there's a dialogue between the two. And Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, says, well, what do you want? You want to go to Babylon? You want to stay here? He says, I'm going to stay here. Well, they end up kidnapping, not the Babylonians. His own people kidnapped Jeremiah and cart him off to Egypt. Anyway, uh, Jeremiah... Uh, once they find him in the prison, they take him out, they keep him in chains, and they take him to Ramah, about 12 miles north of Jerusalem, and there he will be set free. And we pick that up in Jeremiah 40, where Nebuzaradan is speaking with him. He says, now look, I free you this day. And pause there a minute. Nebuzaradan says, you know what happened to your people. They messed with Yahweh. That's what happened. And Jeremiah's kind of like, listen, I'm on another spiritual, I'm in another spiritual zone than you. I, don't be preaching. <laughs> he doesn't say that, but I would have been saying that for Jeremiah had he appointed me his spokesman. Don't be telling Jeremiah about Yahweh. <laughs> anyway, and now look, I free you this day from the chains that were on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I will look after you. But if it seems wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See, all the land is before you. Wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. I, I just, you know, this is like a, there's a warmth. This is the, the Lord just taking care of this man after he had been through so much. And for what? Been through all of that. For people to vilify him and hate on him. And they were the ones that were on the wrong side of righteousness, not Jeremiah. So it is nice to see the kindness that he is receiving now. But he's worn out. But he's got more work. We're going to come to that. He's going to deal with this bunch that um, just low-class people. And you can be in an upper echelon of society and be a low-class person. One ingredient is just being considerate. Another one is to be a flat-out liar. Verse 9, And he burned the house of, of Yahweh. This is Nebuzaradan. This is, the historian is telling you, and this is what he did, by the way. <laughs> he burned the house of Yahweh and the king's house. All the houses of Jerusalem, that is. All the houses of the great He burned with fire. So they sacked Jerusalem. They looted and they destroyed. And uh, this is just what Jeremiah repeatedly had prophesied would happen. Now, they weren't doing this to insult Yahweh. That was not their goal. The goal was to break the, the spirit, the national pride of the Jewish people, so there would be no uprisings. And it, it, it succeeded. In verse 10... And all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard broke down the walls of Jerusalem all around. Now, these were massive stones. This wasn't a picket fence. Uh, This would have to have taken time. Demolition work is more dangerous than than erection and putting the the structures up. Uh, This is serious work. So the temple fell in about 586 years before Christ and remained in ruins for about 400, until 445 years, about 140 years, it remained in ruins. The temple that fell, of course, Ezra come, uh, Zerubbabel comes back, Ezra tells us, and they rebuild the temple with the help of uh, Zechariah and Haggai, the prophet. They rebuild the temple. Well, years later, Herod, the great monster, the murder of the innocents of Bethlehem, He just had this thing for building places. And so he expanded the temple of Zerubbabel 
into the temple that existed in the days of Christ. Well, the Jews kept rebelling until finally the Romans destroyed their temple uh, 70 years after Christ's birth. And it remains, well, you could, yeah, in ruins to this day. I mean, there are stones there, believed that uh, belong to the temple, in, in a pile. And these are giant, ginormous stones, biggest box trucks. Um, so it's been about 1955 years thereabout since the last Jewish temple was destroyed. God is not, um, you know, he doesn't need a temple. Except to say, the body is the temple that houses the Holy Spirit. And it's interesting, when Paul wrote that, the Jewish temple was still there. And he bypasses it. He says, the body is the temple. The Christian body is the temple that houses the Holy Spirit. What a profound statement. If you were a zealous Jew and you heard that, man, you'd be blaspheme. Anyway... Continuing verse 11, Then Nebuzaradan, the captain of the God, carried away captive the rest of the, of the people who remained in the city and the defectors who had deserted to the king of Babylon with the rest of the multitude. Um, so this is the last wave of deportations from Jerusalem and Judah to Babylon. Daniel and Ezekiel had long been already gone and they're in Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel talks about the day the siege begins. So we know they're alive and there. Um, there's, there's a lot here. Uh, I don't know what... Oh, so these defectors that deserted, they were, they were friends of, of, the Babylon, uh, of, of Babylon, of Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, not personally, but they, they defected. Zedekiah mentioned to Jeremiah that he was afraid that uh, they were, harm was going to come to him from, from that party and their relationship to Nebuchadnezzar. And Jeremiah said, don't worry about it. That's not going to happen. But the king didn't believe him, and that's where we are. So going back again, Jeremiah 5, this is um, sort of an overview of what's happening. And it will be when you say, why does Yahweh, our God, do all these things to us? Then you shall answer them, just as you have forsaken me and served foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve aliens in the land that is not yours. And this is fulfilled. Now here's an interesting thing also. The church doesn't have this kind of a promise. The church is a different kind of a promise. The church is told all those who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Take up your cross daily and follow me. There's nothing pleasant about the cross. The flesh despises the cross on every level. And... We're not told, if you obey me, I will protect you from the unbeliever. It's not. Paul wasn't protected. And, well, Paul's, okay, when he, Paul talks about it, he says, and the Lord delivered me from them all. But you've got to scratch your head and say, you, how do you, what's your standard for measure, for saying that? How do you say that? You've been stoned, you've been beaten, you've been shipwrecked. Uh, the fears, the horrors you write, you tell us about. And you think the Lord's delivered you. This is very interesting. And so, you know, the church in Israel, two different entities. They come from the same source, but they have a different role, a different mission. And when the Christian embraces this, we have more power. And when you, when you don't embrace this, I think you have more confusion. And it's nice to be clear to, you know, if, if you are in a profession or at work and you know your job, it's a very nice thing to know your job. And it's a very unpleasant thing when you're confused about what you're supposed to do. So we Christians, if we're confused, we can't blame the leader. And when, you, when we are, as Paul said, perplexed but not in despair. Yeah, there are times I don't know what's going on, but I'm going to trust the Lord. Verse 12, But the captain of the guard left some of the poor of the land as vine dressers and farmers. Well, again, Babylon's intentions were not malicious, uh, in subjugating a, a conquered people as these that are left behind, these field workers. But it is not malicious, but it's a little selfish. You say, well, why are they staying behind to take care of the land? There's nobody there. Well, they're going to, they're going to supply the agricultural goods to the empire of Babylon. That's why. Um, when Nebuchadnezzar wants more grain. His grain officers, they won't even talk to him about it. They'll just, this is what they did, the routines, the, the way they went about their procedures. 
they just would take it from the lands they conquered. So it was a very real element to this because when reading the Bible, sometimes you can you can get to you lose that touch with reality. That's why there's a lot of loony Christians out there. They've lost touch with reality. Like, God's going to do this and God's going to do that. Shut up. You don't know what God's going to do because he hasn't told you. And I can tell by the way you dress, you don't know what he's going to do. Verse 13, uh, the bronze pillars that were in the house of Yahweh and the carts, the bronze sea that were in the house of Yahweh, the Chaldeans broke in pieces and carried their bronze to Babylon. This had to be heartbreaking to the Jews living at that. It's heartbreaking to any righteous person at any time. But to live through this, that beautiful temple of Solomon destroyed. Verse 14, they also took away the pots, the shovels, the trimmers, the spoons, and all the bronze utensils which the priests ministered. That's interesting because when you go through Leviticus and Exodus and you talk about these items, you see, you see the priest had tools. We are a royal priesthood. We have tools also. We have to identify what those tools are. And we use them. We, we work within the means that God has supplied us. And when we try to expand those resources and means, uh, we get in the flesh. Uh, to, but to stay in the spirit is to learn to live without, learn to identify what you're supposed to do, and do it and not be moved off course, which will irritate a lot of people who really just want more. Verse 15, the fire pans and the basins, the things of solid gold, and solid silver the captain of the guard took away. A lot of fun facts tonight. Somebody used that word on me this week, and it's been stuck in my head. Here's a fun fact. Like, I don't know if facts are fun, but uh, the Hebrew use of repetition, uh, they, they, the Hebrew writers use repetition to express superlatives and totality. So if something was really big, when they wrote it in the Hebrew, uh, I'll give you an example. In Genesis 14.10, uh, the writer talks about the asphalt pits. That's how the translators have translated it. But in the Hebrew, it's the pits' pits. Here, where it says solid gold, solid silver, it's really gold, gold, silver, silver. So that kind of, that kind of a writing is what... You, you won't learn just by reading the scripture. It, it calls for a lot of investigation. And there are, you know, if a pastor, he's reading commentaries. They're usually commentaries written by pastors and commentaries written by uh, men who uh, were pastors but have become theologians, uh, like that. And the pastoral commentaries will give you much application, good stuff. But there's another level. And that other level, and it's not better, it's more difficult. But that's where you get these little gems. Somebody who's taken the time to pick apart and, and catalog for us how the Jewish mind worked when they wrote Scripture. So we come to the poetical books, uh, Job, Psalms, uh, Proverbs, and Song, Ecclesiastes, that's in there too, although they're more the wisdom, but they're still part of it. And what makes them poetical is not because they rhyme, but because of the repetition. There's one of the uh, variations in repetition is part of the Jewish writing. That's how they drive their points home. And so when you read this in the Psalms, he said the same thing a different way in the next verse, but he said the same thing. And they do this quite quite a bit. So these little nuances, the idioms, stuff like that tucked into the scripture, uh, it's, it's exciting to me. So back to this, the fire pans, verse 15, the basins, the things of gold, gold, and, and silver, silver. See, this, this is a superlative language. It takes it to another level. You might be totally bored by that. I get excited when I find those kind of things. They're hard to find. Uh, and many times when... You come to a section of scripture, you don't understand what it says in the Hebrew. You've got to find a commentator, and there's a, he's out there somewhere who has got it. And it's, a, it's, a, it's like, boy, I just found a dollar. Anyway, well, with inflation, I've just found 40 cents. <laughs> Verse 16, the two pillars, the sea, the carts which Solomon had made for the house of Yahweh, the bronze, and all these articles was beyond measure. 
So they hit the jackpot, did they not? They're going to pay for their war. Uh, I mean, this will fund, fund the kingdom. Verse 17, the height of the pillar was 18 cubits, and the capital on it was of bronze. The height of the capital was three cubits. Okay, let's just hurry up and get through this. The network and the pomegranates all around the capital were bronze. The second pillar was the same with the network. So the writer is just pouring it on, sort of saying, what a shame. The, the artisans involved in God's house and all of this is chopped up. They've turned it the, the Temple Mountain to a chop shop. Verse 18, well, some of it was preserved and carried off and we'll come back with, when they start repatriating, but not all of it. And the captain of the guard, verse 18, took Sariah, the chief priest, Zephaniah, the second priest, and the three doorkeepers. These are high-ranking officials, verse 19 of the Jews. And uh, he also took out of the city an officer who had charge of the men of war. That's a commanding officer. Five men of the king's close associates who were found in the city, the chief recruiting officer of the army, who mustered the people of the land, and 60 men of the people of the land who were found in the city. So these are are government officials. They have a lot of knowledge, connections, and power, and they're all going to be killed. Verse 20, Then Nebuzaradan, captain of the guard, took these and brought them to the king of Babylon and Riblah. Then the king of Babylon struck them and put them to death at Riblah, In the land of Hamath, thus Judah was carried away captive from its own land. So it's 200 miles away. Jeremiah went only 12 miles. Riblah was further up uh, quite a bit. The historian now is documenting for the Jewish people how the exile happened. This is what happened to you. They were apostates to the bitter end, many of these people in, in Israel. They came to hear Jeremiah, I mean, Ezekiel. They said, well, you got to hear this guy preach. And, oh, man, it's just the best exposition teacher. And they, they just could really care less about Yahweh. And, and Jeremiah called them out on that. You're really not interested. You just think, I'm just entertaining you. And God, of course, was all over that. And that still happens to this day. Uh, where's the depth? Oh, come, let us adore him. Why do you go to church? Well, so, so I come to church so I can find out why other people like the church. And if they don't like the church, I won't like the church. I mean, well, I thought you came to worship the Lord. Well, I do that too. That is the paramount reason for coming to church. You can take everything away. You can still come worship the Lord in, in the assembly. But if you keep everything, you have a big giant building, which is, would be nice. But if you're not worshiping the Lord in earnest, then you're just sounding brass. Anyway, Second Chronicles 36. Moreover, all the leaders of the priests and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abomination, abominations of the nations and defiled the house of Yahweh which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. Well, he deconsecrated it, you could say, I guess. Well, it was special once. It isn't now. They can chop it up and do what they want. I'm out of here. So, I'm reading 2 Chronicles 36, 14 because I made the statement that these people that are being executed were apostates to the end. And there is where I get the statement from, 3 Chronicles 36, 14, that uh, they, the abominations that they were involved with. These are the people that would not listen to Jeremiah. Had they supported Jeremiah, they would have lived, the temple would have remained. Again, Daniel's, Daniel is, has been in 20 years in, in Babylon uh, ministering to the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people alike. You know, how many, how many witch doctors did Daniel save when he told the king, I'll tell you what you dream, dreamed, I'll tell you what it means, but give me a, little, give me a minute, <laughs> I'll get back to you. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was killing the wise men. Well, those are not wise men like, well, they're really deep writers out there writing, you know poems and proverbs. No, these men were shaman. They were witch doctors. They were Chaldeans and, and people in the occult. But Daniel knew that the slaughter of human beings like that was wrong. Uh, and, and he did something about it. 
There's a little bit more, to, a lot more of the story, but that's a portion of it. Verse 22, then he made Gedaliah, the son of Ahiakam, the son of Shaphan, governor over the people who remained in the land of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, left. Now, Gedaliah, he's the one that's going to be killed by his own people. You're going to kill him, and they're going to kill the Babylonian guards that are with him, and uh, they're just going to do a slaughter. They're going to tell Jeremiah, just tell us what Yahweh wants. We'll do it. And then he tells them, we ain't doing that. So we'll, we'll come to that in a moment. But this Gedaliah, he, he comes from uh, some, uh, the pedigree is, is interesting. His, he, his grandfather was Shaphan. We talked about him in the days of Josiah. Shaphan had three sons that were just righteous men and one that was an apostate. His father, Gedaliah's father, Ahiakim, one of those sons, he supported Jeremiah, saved his life. Jeremiah 26, 24, Nevertheless, at the hand of Ahiakim, the son of Shaphan, was with Jeremiah, so that they should not give him into the hand of the people to put him to death. The, the details about how he was hidden are, are not there, but I'm saying Gedaliah was a righteous man. He came from, he had a righteous grandfather and a righteous father, and yet he gets, he gets killed. Verse 23. Now when all the captains of the armies, they and their men, heard that the king of Babylon had made Gedaliah governor, they came to Gedaliah at Mizpah, Ishmael the son of Okay, these names, I'm going to skip them. I can read them, but they're just hard. The tongue gets tired. Anyway, uh, these men came to him. Mizpah, seven miles north of Jerusalem, is now the administrative center because Jerusalem is being dismantled. Verse 24, Gedaliah took an oath before them and their men and said to them, Do not be afraid of the servants of the Chaldeans. Dwell in the land and serve the king of Babylon and it shall be well with you. Well, he's echoing what the prophet Jeremiah said in Jeremiah 29. I know the thoughts that I think towards you. Thoughts of peace to give you hope in the future. Well, Jeremiah said, stay in the land. Plant gardens. You're going to be there 70 years. You might as well have a good time. <laughs> and well, Gedaliah is just, you know, he's a righteous man. He's, he believed Jeremiah. He's quoting him. Identical counsel. Verse 25. But it happened in the seventh month that Ishmael, the son of Nethaniah, you just can't get away. Those names are just waiting for you in the next verse. The son of Elishama, of the royal family, came with ten men and struck and killed Gedaliah, the Jews, as well as the Chaldeans who were with him at Mizpah. So these complete fools decided that um, they were going to go to Egypt for fine relief, and they were going to Slaughter people to do it. This brought chaos and ruin to the remaining people. Well, in Jeremiah 45, they come to him. So they said to Jeremiah, Let Yahweh be a true and faithful witness between us if we do not do according to everything which Yahweh, your God, sends us by you. That's what they said to Jeremiah, this group. They never intended to perform what they promised if what they wanted was not satisfied. Are there people like that today? Do they go to church? <laughs> Some of them do. Verse 43 now, I mean chapter 43 of Jeremiah, where the story continues. Azariah, the son of Hoshiah. Okay, here's some more names. I imported them. And all the proud men spoke, saying to Jeremiah, You speak falsely. Yahweh, our God, has not sent you to say, do not go to Egypt to dwell there. Well, Moses, a long time ago, told the people, don't go back to live in Egypt. And, and it just, so, of course, they just kidnapped Jeremiah and go anyway. Uh, they wanted God's blessings on what they liked. And I'm telling you, there are people that will say, Pastor, what do you think of this? And if I say, I don't care for it, oh boy, oh man, you won't see them again. Uh, I remember years ago, one that stands out, there are quite a few. There's probably a few for every year. Uh, he, he, it was the shack, and his, his daughter gave him the book, The Shack. She wasn't even a believer. He said, what do you think of this? I think it's garbage. I think it contradicts what the Bible says about Jesus Christ. It's, it, it's a misrepresentation of what is clear in Scripture. His lip quivered, his eyes teared up. I felt, man, that's weird. And um, he rode off into the sunset. Didn't even say goodbye. 
anyhow, it happens, and uh, that's lesser than what Jeremiah had to do. I mean, these guys were thugs. Uh, I'm just dealing with people who are just a little unstable at the time, and hope you hope they figure it out. They're probably telling stories about me. Like, he's just great. His, his advice was wonderful. Why didn't I listen to him? I'm sure that's what they're saying. Anyway, back, back to this. Uh, well, you know, that's a wake-up call for us. How do you feel when you have a good idea, especially if you're a person of means, you've accomplished things in the world, and you come to the church? You see, the church does not run like the world. It doesn't run like a business either. It's a lot of different things. If the pastors are led by the Spirit, there's going to be a whole other element of change because you're going to think something's illogical. But maybe, maybe that pastor's looking out for somebody that you know nothing about. And he's not going to tell you. You're not going to air laundry. Maybe he's got a system in place that is under the leading of the Holy Spirit. And uh, you don't see it. Well, I mean, you've got to understand, it's, it's not, they're not interchangeable. And this is why many churches, I think, have, are just like the world, because the businessmen run them. Uh, there are good sound principles to leading the church, for sure. But there's also a spiritual element that will say, we will suffer that loss. We'll take it. They'll take that on the chin. We won't sue. We won't do this. We don't. This is what, uh, and a business mind will say, no way. We're going to let that go. And Different things. I don't think people think about those things. But you... Um, you should be somewhat mindful of it. Uh, that is not a criticism of the business world, not, not at all. It's just the two different animals, but people think that, well, what works over here should work over here too. And it's not interchangeable. Verse 26, And all the people, small and great, the captains of the armies, arose and went to Egypt, for they were afraid of the Chaldeans. Well, fear of men caused them to reject the man who feared God, and that would be Jeremiah. Verse 27, Now it came to pass... In the 37th year of the captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. Well, I have to pause there. He's really not king of Judah. He's really a prisoner. <laughs> He's been a prisoner for 37 years in Babylon. But anyway, let's come back to it. Uh, captivity of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. In the 12th month of the 27th day of the month, that Evel Moradak, king of Babylon, in the year that he reigned, released Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. Okay, a lot going on here. You look at this and say, oh, what do I need to know about the seventh day and the seventh month? Well, many times they tell us about what's happening in other parts of the history of the Jews and are, are very important. It's just heavy-duty reading. Uh, and without reference material, you can just get lost in the sauce. But anyway, this is Nebuchadnezzar's son now. Uh, evil Merodach. Evil is not an English word meaning evil like we use the word. Just uh, <laughs> unfortunate for him from our perspective. Hey, your name is your first name is Evil. What was your mom thinking? I mean, it's not like that. Anyway, verse 28, he spoke kindly to him, gave him a more prominent seat than those of the kings who were with him in Babylon. Well, who's influencing this guy? Daniel's still alive. Daniel's going to be alive until the Persians come, man. He's, he's, he's just like, he wouldn't die. He just stayed there in Babylon doing stuff for the Lord. There's no way you could read the book of Daniel and say, well, that's all there is to the man. It's just, you'd be, you're like, are you crazy? Something hit you in your head? If anybody could see what he saw, there's a lot more ministry going on that you can't put down in writing. Well, and that's true of all of them. What do you think, Obadiah just had that one thing? He just wrote the prophecy of Obadiah about Edom but did nothing else? Not at all. He was known as a prophet of God, or else they would not have published and preserved his writing. Anyhow, uh, this Jehoiachin, he was king in Judah for three months and ten days. Someone made sure they got that in. And he was such a mess that Babylon just arrested him and his mama, because Coniah is his name also, and took them to Babylon. And they're in jail for 37 years. That's, you know, we get the seventh day of the fifth month. That's how we're getting these things. Uh, verse 29, so Jehoiachin, 
changed from his prison garments, and he ate bread regularly before the king all the days of his life. So certainly the son of Nebuchadnezzar had a different approach to, to reigning, and he felt that, you know, hey, there are other people from conquered people that could probably be useful to me. Uh, when the Persians get in power, they're going to take that to another level, and it will benefit the Jewish people. Others too, but mostly the Jews. Well, not so with, Jehoi, uh, with Zedekiah. We, we talked about him. He saw his sons killed. They, then they gouged his eyes out. Jehoiachin's release from prison. It concludes the story of the kings of, of Judah and Israel with a glimmer of hope. Because he's David's royal line, though he's going to be bypassed. But by legal right, he, the line continues to go on. And so we read... In Matthew 1, the book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Well, if the Assyrians and the Babylonians succeeded in wiping out the Davidic line, we wouldn't have Matthew 1.1. So God is totally, as I mentioned, uh, on top of everything here. The kings of Judah and Israel concludes, this concludes the, the story of the last kings. And here we have this alumni of the Babylonian prison system. He is sitting as a defeated prisoner king at another king's palace. It should not have gone this way. I've got a little bit more to say, but let's look verse 30 now. And as far as his provisions, there was a regular ration given him by the king, a portion for each day, all the days of his life. So he goes out in comfort. And he may have, we're not told of his spiritual state, um, for whatever reason, we have no reason to say he repented or not. We just don't know. So the prophets and the priests and the kings, all taken out of the promised land. Even Jeremiah taken out to Egypt. Jeremiah 29.10, For thus says Yahweh, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. And so in the midst of all of this captivity and kidnapping of the prophet Jeremiah, Jeremiah, is, no, he knows that it's a 70-year punishment. Daniel picks up on this and quotes Jeremiah. He was reading Jeremiah and he was asking for understanding. And he, we're not going to take time to go into that. We won't get out of here. So in conclusion, this checkered story of the kings, and it is a checkered story, nearly 500 years worth of it, of wasted opportunity, it ends disastrously. It ends with their kings, you know, one being maimed and the other, you know, just a prisoner at the table of a king, the sack of Jerusalem, the fall of the monarchy, the removal of the people to Babylon, and all that made Judah the kingdom of God gone, chopped up and carted away. The nation that was called to be a peculiar people, a special people of honor, became a scattered people. They were peeled like a banana because of their unbelief. And the Bible tells us many sad stories under the sun. What if we only had kings and chronicles and lamentations? Oh, man. What hope would come out of that? So when the prophets come along, especially Isaiah, he talks so much about the, the, you know, the millennial reign of Christ when the Messiah is on the throne. And the people getting hope from that like we do when we talk about the rapture and, and, and heaven. And so uh, had we only those, those books, we would be left to conclude that man is in such a pitiful state, there's no hope. But we have another book. We don't just have those. We have the Lamb's Book of Life. And I'll close with this reading from Revelation 21. So I, I think it's just a fitting ending to, a, uh, to bring light to a sad story. But I saw no temple in it, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it, and the Lamb is its light. How, could, how can you say Christ is a created being when he is the Lamb? And he is the light. How do you? Anyway, coming back. The nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor to it. So, this is New Jerusalem he's talking about, and those that will survive the tribulation period, be born in the tribulation period, and the light of New Jerusalem will be 
uh, is something that illuminates, and they will recognize this. Uh, it continues, Its gates shall not be shut at all by day. There shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. There will be festivities to acknowledge the righteousness of the Lord and the work of the saints. Continues, But there shall by no means enter in it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there are, there's another book. This book may end in tragedy, but not that one. Let's pray. Our Father, as always, your word, so full of insight and promise and hope and fact, reality, things we otherwise might not want to face. Yet, we have a God that not only faces it all, but reigns supreme. We love and worship you, and we ask that you get us home safely. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.